were doing their thing and good things were happening. We read about some of those good things in Acts chapter 5, uh, 4 and 5, um, but they were all just kind of huddled up in one place. And that's not exactly being obedient to Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all peoples, right? And so by, the, by God's grace and through a, the less than fun instigating action of some persecution, um, the Genti- uh, like we're told in Acts chapter 8 that, that everybody kind of scatters out of the city of Jerusalem and lands in all of these different places. And because they land in all these different places, uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews in all these different places, they begin to hear about the gospel. They become Christians. New churches spring up. And and while there are 100,000 things to celebrate about that reality, there are also 1,000 problems to now deal with. Chief among them, do the Gentiles have to convert to Judaism in order to become Christians? Like, what's the answer to that question? Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. His work on the cross to save people from their sins is acceptable to the Father precisely because Jesus was a perfectly obedient Jew. He was perfectly obedient to the law. That's what makes him worthy to be a substitute. Otherwise, he would not be a spotless sacrificial lamb. Jesus did all the things. So are Jesus' followers now supposed to do all the things? The answer to that finally comes down, the answer is no. Um, that much of the Jewish law and custom served as temporary placeholders, awaiting, pointing lovingly to a day, longingly to a day when Jesus would finally fulfill them. And that while God was pleased to bring his grand plan of salvation through a singular people group, the Jews, That plan didn't stop with them. The salvation of God secured by Jesus was available to every people group. But if this letter was written, we think, before that formal answer came, then that means this is still an incredibly active debate in in James's audience. And so people got some opinions. And the overarching purpose of this letter, I would argue is James saying that while faith alone in Jesus and the finished work of Jesus is what saves you, that faith is never actually alone. Authentic faith produces a natural fruit. And, or, or to be more consistent with you know, the, the artwork for our series, uh, authentic faith goes to work. It creates an effect on other things, like a sledgehammer hitting it. it like there, there's going to be a rebound right? In chapter one, James gives three kind of main categories of the natural fruit that ought to be produced in the authentically faithful. How you treat others, how you control your tongue, and how you view your own sin and the good things that that it robs from you, the the good things that it ruins, right? Uh, But for the last several weeks, James has uh, begun to focus on another, I would argue, overarching category of authentic faith. God's people are to humble themselves before the Lord, is his argument. And that humility is going to affect all kinds of things. It's going to affect how we treat others. It's going to affect how we control our tongues. And it's definitely going to affect how we view our own sin. But James's argument is that while well, that we find that act of humbling really, really hard to do because we're actually at war within ourselves. So he says at the beginning of chapter 4, we've been reconciled to God by the work of Jesus. It is his grace alone that draws us near. We delight in our salvation and we delight in the beauty of who he is, but at the same time our sin does us dirty. 
Our sin-bent hearts still long for whatever we can cling to to make much of ourselves. It's a terribly unwise trade, but we're often a terribly unwise people. And a failure, James argues, the failure to actively humble ourselves before God, it will inevitably lead to several less than admirable things coming out of us. All throughout chapter 4 of this letter, James makes the claim that a lack of active humility before God will end up producing fights and quarrels among his people, that it will cause us to speak out against, uh, to speak evil against one another, to become the perpetual critic, and it will even cause us to lose sight of who is actually sovereign over our calendar and our to-do list. We start seeing ourselves and our stuff and even our control of the circumstances around us. We start to see those things on the same level of beauty and satisfaction as God is. And in the entire history of creation, that has never, ever worked out in our favor. And so James' call, James's call in chapter 4 is to repent. It's just to, to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, and draw near to God. So the next question in the progression, kind of progression of logic in, in kind of James's letter here, uh, I think the, the next logical question is pretty clear. Uh, I, what, what about those who never, ever humble themselves before the Lord? Well, James is going to get into that next. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, this is going to be a fun Sunday. <laughs> James channels his inner Old Testament prophet here. All right, be honest. How many of y'all were just itching for the next tearing to the rich people sermon? Like, is that what you woke up this morning really wanting to get into? So by my, my vantage point, there are, I think, at least three uh, disclaimers that need to be made in this moment before we can dig into this text in a way uh, that, that I think James would intend for us to, to hear this text. Uh, the first disclaimer is this. I, I don't know what your church background is. I, I really don't. Um, I don't know if you've got some bad experiences in your back pocket of churches who are always asking, for you, asking you for your money. I, I don't know if you've built up some straw men uh, and you're thinking to yourself, oh no, here we go again. I, I don't know what your history is. Uh, first of all, you can ask the people who have been here for a while. We probably talk about money a lot less often than the Bible does. And so if anything, we err in the other direction. Um, but secondly, we haven't read the text yet. We're, we're, we just got through verse 1. And in this entire paragraph, James isn't going to call for the rich to give away even a single penny. That's not where he's going. It's nowhere in this text. And so maybe, I don't know. Maybe take the straw man down for a moment and listen to what James is actually going to say before we try to light anything on fire. That's disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two. If you automatically put yourself in the not rich category, then you don't really have an honest view of yourself and your opportunities. Throughout Western history, there have been some major movements that have sought to divide people between economic classes and then pit them against each other uh, and for political causes and social causes. And some of those movements are still hanging around today and causing all kinds of problems. Uh, but, but in order for those movements and arguments to sound even remotely plausible, they have to depend on, stand on the shoulders of something that I think is a clear dysfunction in human nature. All right? um, every single one of us has this really uncanny ability to only 
only ever look upstream at those who have more than us and never, ever, don't you dare ever look downstream at those who have significantly less than us. Are you as guilty as, that, as I am? Hey, you know what ought to completely kill someone's desire to take everything away from the 1%? Realizing that you're standing incredibly comfortable in the 2 to 5%. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of people further down the line who you don't want using that same logic. I googled a couple of different global wealth calculators this week. You can find them all over the place if you, if you dig in online. I, I'm not paid crazy. The Wooders are taken care of. Don't worry. Um, Wooders are in good place. But, but, we also started pretty late on the whole house buying thing. Um, it just wasn't something that was on our radar until we were, were way down the line, further down the line than a lot of other people are, which means I have a large number of years left on my mortgage. <laughs> it's not a fancy house. There's a long way to go. <laughs> also, we got a really late start on the whole retirement saving things, savings thing. I, I probably should have started 20 years ago. That hasn't really gotten off the ground yet. All right, compound interest is not my friend at the moment. All right, we drive a couple of 10-year-old cars. All right, Katie needs some new brakes. <laughs> I, I got to try to address that this week. The Woodards are comfortable, but like no one in our culture would ever make the claim that the Woodards are making bank. Nobody. And even with those realities, even with those things firmly in place, according to the handful of calculators that I was just able to Google this week, I am still in what's called the 4.5% category of all of the global wealth holders. Top 4.5%. Even with my many, 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 many years on a mortgage and a 10-year-old car. I stopped by Prest this morning on my way to church and I got a large cold brew. So far, according to the data I could find, I have spent more today on coffee than what a third of the world will earn this month. If the very first thing that pops into your head when you hear the word rich is some kind of caricature of Mr. Moneybags, if you're called to draw the line uh, somewhere for how much is too much, and your natural instinct is to draw the line just a little bit north of where you're standing, then you don't understand how insanely comfortable you are compared to the rest of the world, especially the rest of human history. That's disclaimer number two, but here's the third disclaimer. James has reserved his harshest language in this letter so far for this very moment. He goes, he goes Old Testament prophet here. I've been telling you throughout this series that whenever James is about to tear into them, he always drops a little, a little affirming uh, uh, phrase. You remember what it was? Brothers, some version of brothers. Brothers, my brothers, my beloved brothers. There's no brothers here. It's, it's not in the text, it's not in the sentence. He always doubles down uh, by affirming their relational connection, but there's no, there's no brothers in this moment. And it causes most commentators to assume that James is not referring to Christians who happen to be rich in this moment, but rather to outsiders of the church whose, in, whose only identity, whose entire identity is wrapped up in their riches. Why would a James address non-Christians in a letter that he wrote to Christians? Right? Isn't that, isn't that who he's writing to? I mean... How many non-Christians are picking up James's letter to read it? 
couple of things. This letter was not private. Because it was a general letter, it was a circulating letter, and it was often read publicly, which means that the rich are going to hear what God's Word has to say to them. They're around. But also, two, I think this is the bigger purpose, I think James intends to warn those who are tempted to see riches as something worthy to chase after. And his argument here in a moment is going to be that those riches are not what they seem to be. And James's heart for God's people is that they would not fall victim to chasing after something that can't actually satisfy. He would guard them from it. And so he says, the rich, those who define their lives by what they can accumulate, those whose God is their belly and their comfort, you ought to weep and howl because misery is coming for you. Look at verse 2. It says this, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's a fun picture. You have laid up treasure in the last days. All right, so Jesus said something similar to this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? right? He said uh, that we ought to lay up treasures in heaven instead of treasures on earth, treasures that thieves cannot break in and steal and where moth and rust cannot destroy, right? That's what he said. Uh, but James takes it a step beyond that, and he says, you've been working your tail off to hurry up and collect a pile of treasures in this world, but two things are true. They, they're, they are already corroded. They are already moth-eaten. And two, these last days means that everything's got a shelf life. We talked about the shelf life piece last week when we talked to our young ladies that had who just graduated, and so we don't have to spend a lot of time on that, or even any time, I think, on that this, this morning. But I also find, also find James's first point to be the one that's way, way harder for people in our culture to wrap their heads around. The idea that these treasures we work so hard for never prove themselves to be as valuable as we hoped they would be. You may have noticed that James talked about both silver and gold being corroded. I don't know how much you know about fine metals, precious metals. Silver corrodes, but gold doesn't. In fact, the reality that gold doesn't corrode is one of the things that helps contribute to its higher value. It's why it gets used for all kinds of applications where corrosion would be a massive problem. All right, all right. And so, um, does, does James not does James not know what he's talking about here? Is this one of those places I've heard about, one of those fabled places where the Bible is inconsistent with what we understand about science? No. And I think James is pointing out that regardless of the perceived earthly value of something, even if that thing is the surest investment in the world, that value still breaks down on both the spiritual and eternal levels. Gold may pad your bank account, Its stability may be some form of ballast to your portfolio in a volatile economy, but all the gold in the world, every ounce of it, will not change your standing before an infinitely holy God. You are either, you are either reconciled to him rightly or you await the perfect justice of his righteous wrath. Doesn't matter how how many carrots are in that gold. 
One of these days we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and your pile of earthly treasure, no matter how big you manage to build it and no matter how much shinier it is than your neighbors, it will not impress God. It just won't. He's not going to be blown away by that. Tip his hat to it. But as tragic as that sounds, James hints at a darker reality here at the beginning of verse 3. He says that it will stand as evidence against you. That brings us to verse 4. Look at it. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. All right, so don't let that word mow kind of drag you into the weeds there. Uh, Don't let it paint the wrong picture. Nobody in this culture has what we would call a lawn. All right, nobody's doing any kind of ornamental landscaping. He's talking about people who have been hired out to help you harvest the field. All right, that's what's going on here. Apparently, James can point to a trend in the culture around them of rich folks hiring some extra laborers during harvest time and then stiffing them at the end of the day when it comes time to pay. Apparently, that's going on. It was customary in that culture to pay a laborer at the end of every workday. Uh, they didn't work for you for a week and then payday came. No, you paid them at the end of the day. All right? All right, and so, uh, but it wouldn't have been uncommon, unfortunately, in that culture for a field owner to come up with some kind of lame excuse about not having the money on them and needing to get them tomorrow. James says that they kept back the wages by fraud. That little thing inside of you that pricks you in that moment to see that kind of injustice? Where, where, do, where do you think that comes from? Like, I, I, you may have some kind of pragmatic ideas about how the world works. You may be thinking to yourself that, well, the field owner should definitely pay because if the field owner doesn't pay, then the workers will rise up and take what they want. But that doesn't settle that nagging sense inside of you that that's not just unwise, but actually wrong. Objectively Wrong. A wage is something that is rightly earned. It's owed to you. And in this case, it is being unjustly withheld. And for God's people, this is actually something that the Levitical law expressly forbid. Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24. And so while while James says at the end of verse 4 that the harvesters are crying out, he does something else on top of that. He he adds a lot of depth here. At the beginning of verse 4, he actually personifies the wage themselves. It says the wages are crying out against the injustice. How could a wage ever do something like that? Wages don't talk. They do when they're evidence. They do when they're evidence. When they stand as evidence in a legal proceeding, yeah, it talks a lot. Okay, but who's doing the judging? Maybe I can get a, a nice guy on my hands. I sweeten the deal and I get somebody with a good attitude, you know what, I I can maybe work my way out of this. James tells us that the judge is the Lord of hosts. Host is not a term that we use very much in our culture. Um, It just doesn't get a lot of airtime. It's another word for armies. In other words, the Lord of the armies is hearing the evidence and he's taking notes. Are we all in in a place where we can assume that that's a bad thing for those racking up injustices? That one day the righting of all wrongs will not be a pleasant experience for that crowd. We good on that? But if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, 
I mean, that'll definitely stink, but I can proudly say that I've never defrauded anyone of anything. And I have never personally taken advantage of others. Surely I'm in the clear. Well, James ain't done. All right, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. All right, so I don't know of a better way to help make James's point stick here than to actually do the work of trying to imagine the picture that he just painted. All right, so close your eyes for a second, play along with the game. All right, you're a sheep and you're enjoying yourself in the sheepfold. All right, you're doing all the typical day-to-day sheep kind of things. You and your sheep buddies are good, content, happy little sheep. All right, and then one day, one day you notice your food supply has suddenly doubled. And it's the good stuff, too. We're not talking about just a, a second portion of the day's rations. No, no, you're getting the tasty calories. It's a good day. And then the next day, you get it again. You get double the food all over again. And life is looking pretty grand for the sheep right about now. In fact, you're in sheep heaven. Woo! So you return again and again and again, day after day after day to the feeding trough. Because, I mean, why not? Life is good for the sheep. Woo-hoo! As a sheep, you're thoroughly enjoying yourself. And you also have absolutely no idea what's about to happen. You are blissfully fattening yourself up while the hungry shepherd waits by patiently. And with every enjoyable bite, with every glad and satisfactory gulp, you are inching closer and closer to your very own slaughter. Church, is it possible... Is it possible that the things our world typically tries to describe as luxuries, things that it tries its best to hold up as, you know, simply the the well-earned comforts and adornments of someone's hard work and dedication? Is it possible that those things are at least capable, at least capable of luring people further and further into their very own judgment? That instead of being proofs of arrival and status, that they can just as easily draw us closer and closer, bite by blissful bite, into our own demise. James argues that an active humbling of ourselves before the Lord, they can become exactly that. In fact, they likely will become that. But remember our disclaimers. Don't hear the wrong thing in this moment. James is not calling for anyone to turn around and give everything away to the church or anywhere else. There's an implied command to be just in your business dealings. It doesn't sound wise to go, <laughs> go down that route after hearing this. You should never defraud the one who works for you. That's as far as it goes. James doesn't call anyone to give anything away here. And neither has James drawn the how much is too much line somewhere between you and the caricature. He's not attacking the proverbial Mr. Moneybags right now. He's not attacking those who have a nicer car than you do or a nicer house than you do. Those who go on nicer vacations than you and I will ever be able to afford. No, he's attacking those who have puffed up their chest with a self-made pride and have wrapped their identities around the sin-bent posture of, I deserve this. It's owed to me. Now that can... That can be true of the one constantly chasing after the biggest house. That can also be true of the one who thinks that the much more reasonable mortgage ought to be a little bit further down the line by now. Come on, I deserve this. That can be true of the guy driving the flashy car. 
But it can also be true of the guy driving a 10-year-old Corolla, stopping on his way to church to grab a large cold brew. Come on, I deserve this. James's call is to worry a lot less about where exactly the line is drawn and to place the worry instead on what unchecked, sin-bent hearts do with comfort and luxury of every shape and size. And out of the many, 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 many reasons why the gospel of Jesus is beautiful news, church, one of the reasons I love the absolute most is that Jesus is never fooled by the games that we try to play with ourselves. He sees right through the facades I often try to build up. He knows our hearts and he claims them for himself. He wants to give us himself as the sweeter prize than every other possible thing that we could go chasing after. And every other thing that we can begin to believe that we deserve. And even better, he will not rest until he roots out all of the less satisfactory lovers. It's good like that. Which leads us to the last thing James has to say to the unbelieving rich, which is totally also availed encouragement to God's people, regardless of whether they think they're rich or not. Verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I know the language of murder sounds like an overstatement to our modern sensibilities. I know it does, but it's also language that would have been immediately understood and picked up on and vested with lots of meaning to most of the people in James's original audience. Um, if you're not familiar with the Apocrypha, uh, it's a collection of extra writings that were written during Bible times or what we would call the intertestamental period, so between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, but unlike the books that are actually in the Bible, the Apocrypha books, uh, they don't carry enough authority to include them. Uh, though some Christian traditions do include them in there and call them authoritative, we got problems with that. All right. um, we got a number of really smart reasons to disagree with them, uh, up to and including the fact that in Jesus' day, they were there, they knew about them, they read them, and Jesus and other faithful Jews didn't seem to see them as authoritative, so that's a good enough reason to not see that, them that way ourselves. Um, but as Protestants, here's what you need to know about the Apocrypha. The value of the Apocryphal books is not zero. We don't call them authoritative, but the value is not zero. Jews in James's audience would have read those writings, understood those writings, considered them to be valuable writings, maybe even committed much of them to memory. And even if, well, even if they're not authoritative, they still would have seen them as adding incredible wisdom to the spiritual conversation in front of them. And so, not Bible level, but not blindly dismissed either. In one of the apocryphal books, a book called the Book of Sirach, we're told this. The bread of the needy is the life of the poor. Whoever deprives them of it is a man of blood. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of wages is to shed blood. Like, those are some big words, right? To take away a man's living is to murder him? Seriously? Now, that does not mean that if you've ever been fired in your life, that your boss did you wrong. I can promise you the only time that Stephen Woodard's been fired, I deserved it. My boss in that moment did not murder me by depriving me of my livelihood. He helped me grow up a little bit. I needed it. Now what the writer of Sirach is talking about, and I think this is why James alludes to him in verse 6, I think, I think he's talking about the vindictive holding of your thumb on someone in a position of vulnerability so that you can keep them in place and not let them make something better of themselves. You've got control, and as long as you can maintain control, you stay ahead. 
So why would that be something James would want to allude to here? Well, it's really, really important to remember who James's audience is. At the very beginning of this letter, James had to deal with a massive issue before he could even get into discussing the relationship between faith and works. What, what was the issue? Trials. The persecution that they're facing and had faced, all right? Very real persecution. Trials of various kinds, I believe, the, or the, is the vocabulary that he used. James' audience is largely made up of people who, who are actively under the thumb. They're not the ones pressing the thumb down. They're the ones under the thumb in this moment. A few times now in this series, I've read directly from one of the commentaries that I've been using to uh, kind of lean it on to help me when I, I'm studying each week. A uh, commentary called Exalting Jesus in James. It says this. Now for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of the struggling, impoverished, persecuted Christians who might be reading this letter. You hear the word of God towards the unbelieving rich, and you know that he's coming to judge the sinful. But even more than that, you realize he is coming to deliver the faithful. James is telling his hearers that their cries and their pain are heard on high. The Lord of hosts will vindicate them in due time. Church, James opened this letter by addressing the persecution that they had faced and could likely expect to face again in the near future. And he's going to come back to that same topic at the end. That's where our text is taking us next week. All right, get ready for it. Right, but in the meantime, follower of Jesus, hear the warning of the Apostle James. Do not mistake comfort and ease on earthly levels as some kind of obvious blessing from the Lord. Because they're often not that at all. They're often not, exact, not at all what they seem to be or are celebrated to, to be. But listen, neither should we mistake poverty and hardship and trials for some kind of absence of his blessing. No, God is using those often for our deepest good. God is and will continue to use those things for our eternal good. This, this world is not our home. It's not our home. And that means that we need to guard ourselves from falling victim to the ever-present lie that it can be. In God's good upside-down kingdom, silver and gold corrodes. And trials can be used by Him to produce joy. And so watch carefully what you attach your heart to and chase after because it's, not, it's almost never what it seems. It would be a shame to cash in an eternity of splendor for some kind of temporary moment of corroding comfort. So what do we do with this stuff, huh? How can we, res we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And church, it is, it is really good news that he gives us new hearts to love him more than this world, isn't it? How good is he that he would not only give us the good gifts of this world, but also outshine all of those good gifts and allow us to see him as an infinitely more beautiful option? Hey, you know what ought to completely kill someone's desire to long for what they don't have in this world on a sinful level? Realizing that in Jesus, you've already been given something far, far better. Do you see him clearly? Do you see him accurately? Uh, Christian, it'll change what you chase after. It'll change what you forever put your hope in and long for. I'm, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's the time that we, we specifically set aside each week to help you kind of process things, to translate the head knowledge into something much better than that. All right? And so if you want to talk, I'll, I'll be down front here. We can talk. Let's go. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How can you respond? You respond by meeting Jesus. 
You respond by meeting Jesus. Uh, what is your identity wrapped up in? What do you desperately want in this life? And a much harder question, what will it finally make you if you ever get it? Are you finally going to be free on that day? Or are you just going to have to move the goalpost a little bit and chase after that instead? The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all, by default, separated relationally from God. And that because of that separation, we are owed. <laughs> the wages of sin are the right and just punishment, death. But God is rich in mercy and he loves us with a great love. And even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive through Jesus by his grace. How? He sent his son. The eternal son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He stepped down from all of the title and comfort that belonged to him and he took on the form of a servant, we're told. Jesus lived the sinless life, perfectly obedient to, uh, before the Father that you can't live and I can't live. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. In other words, we can say it this way, he humbled himself before the Father and the Father has exalted him. Now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can respond to Jesus. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe you've been here for a while now and you've been checking us out and God has convinced you that it's time to formally join our church family. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit now, but for whatever reason, you haven't been obedient yet to his command to be baptized. Or maybe, maybe God's calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here and it's time to make that call public. And I'd love to help you think through what next steps look like. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for... A warning to the rich. Not some far off billionaire that's easy to critique. But me. I is the rich. And if that is where my identity is found, it will only ever be fleeting. will only ever be corroded and corroding. Rotten and rotting. But God, you are far more lovely than the shiniest piece of gold. And far more valuable than the world's biggest pile of it. Would you create a longing in our hearts to, to want you more than the pile? And then to be faithful with whatever pile you think is wise to put in our hands. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known, reveal yourself. Show off your value and beauty and loveliness to those who have never seen it yet. Open eyes to see this morning. Call men and women into your kingdom. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.